It's Sunday morning. Time for the Great Outdoors with Charlie Potter. Brought to you by the all-new Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. Good morning. Welcome to the Great Outdoors show. Charlie Potter, your host here on WGN Radio. I've done a number of shows from location outside of the studio. So this morning, it's dark where I am. If you hear the sound of surf, it's the Pacific Ocean pounding on the beach where I'm camped. So hopefully we can get through the show without too many waves interrupting us. It definitely is a different location, and I'll certainly talk more. Well, I'll just start off right now. I'm doing a tour down the coast of the Pacific, starting in Northern California, moving southward, looking not only at the condition of our state parks in California and national forests, but also following shorebirds as they migrate south. It's a little bit of a different thing for me. I've followed waterfowl for years as they migrate south, and yes, I guess you could say I follow shorebirds as a result because I'm following ducks and geese. But this time I'm following avocets and sandpipers and all terns and all kinds of birds as they work their way south. And my timing has been spectacular because I arrived here to head south down the coast the same time a huge north wind arrived straight from the Bering Sea, straight from Alaska, coming right down through Canada. This is what brought snow to the northern Rockies and colder temperatures to Chicago last week. And it arrived here with 50-mile-an-hour winds. And when it arrived, it brought the shorebirds with it, the plovers and, and avocets and all these estuaries along the California coast, those that haven't been drained, just loaded up with incredible variety of, of shorebirds. And, of course, California has lost something like 98% of its wetlands. It's absolutely tragic what's happened. The coastal wetlands have been particularly impacted. Ironically, and there used to be, I think, six duck hunting clubs around Newport Beach in Southern California today. Of course, they're zero because they filled it all in and they built things like Fantasy Island, Shopping Mall, and all those kinds of things. But the California coast, if you get away from the people, which, which you can do, we realize there are many people in California as there are in all of Canada and in Southern California is where most of them live. But you can still get away, as I have, and find yourself on beaches for miles, miles, where there's not a person. And you can take yourself back in time. And in this case, every little puddle on the beach has migrating shorebirds in it. And they'll be going all the way down to Chile from here. But one of the things that's going on in California, which part of the reason I came this year it's the same thing that's going on in the Midwest, but today we're going to talk about California, and then I'm going to talk about where I was 40 years ago on this day when I did follow the migration from the end of the road in the north to the end of the road in the south. The uh, drought here in California is so severe that something like 60% of the flooded rice fields in the Central Valley of California, which provide the most critical habitat for for wintering waterfowl and also for just millions of, of, of shorebirds that pass through are dry. They're not even flooded. Tool Lake, 
Klamath Falls Basin, the two biggest staging lakes in Northern California and Southern Oregon are, are essentially dry, stump lake dry. So the major, major staging and wintering areas on the West Coast that these birds have depended on for millennia are dry. They're non-existent. And I'm, I don't know. Nobody really knows. We've never been here before. So they overfly areas that are dry. That we know. Just like in the spring, if the prairies are dry, they overfly them to go further north and sit out in the summer. But at least they have a place to sit out in the boreal forest and the Arctic. When you come south and things are dry, nobody knows what these birds are going to do. My guess is that we're going to see millions perish because of a lack of food and a lack of habitat. There are a tremendous number of duck clubs in the Central Valley of California that are providing the only habitat there is for waterfowl. And, and, and in California, unlike the Midwest, if it wasn't for privately owned duck clubs, there, there just would be no way the birds could survive here because there isn't enough habitat left. It's all been destroyed. So the, the National Wildlife Refuges, of which there aren't enough in the Central Valley and the Butte Sink, are augmented by an enormous number of, of private hunting clubs, which have provided for the last, really the last hundred years, the best habitat in California, and they can't get water. Lots of them can't get water. Some can. Those that can get water, they've never seen so many ducks in their life. But that is not going to carry the population. And compounding that, next week I'm going to be in at the Great Salt Lake for the announcing of a, of a new epic IMAX movie that's going to try to address the uh, decline in the Great Salt Lake, which is enormous. We'll talk about that next week when I'm there. But um, combine the loss of habitat in California because of the drought with the loss of the Great Salt Lake being lowest level in its history because of the drought and and all the man-made things that are happening in the last decade in in, in Utah. And and we have a situation in in the Pacific Flyway that's unlike any we have well, it's unlike any we've known. We, we just simply have never been here before. So uh, it's not good news, but the surf is pounding in front of me. The north wind has laid. And one of the funny things in California, you think if you're on the Pacific Ocean and you're walking for miles down these beaches, particularly in the, in the evening when a lot of the birds are, are, are moving along the shore, you'd think you'd be looking at an incredibly beautiful setting sun. But you're not. Because we forget that much of California's coastline faces south. The coast of California is moving southeast all the time. So when the sun set last night when I was on the beach, I'm looking straight south. When you think you're looking out at the Pacific and looking straight west, I'm definitely looking out at the Pacific, but I'm looking straight south. So the beautiful sunsets that one thinks of here, they don't occur in most of California because of the direction that the sun is setting. And and as you move south off Point Conception, where I am now and spending the night, you're looking straight south. And and 100 miles to the south is Los Angeles. But where I am, it's desolate. It's wild. The dunes are are undisturbed. They have never been touched. And I'm in an area that says it looks a lot like the Oregon coast for how wild it is. High bluffs incredible beach, pounding surf. Of course, the surfers love it here, but very, very, I can say very, very few people. And as I said earlier, it's amazing how with just a little bit of effort, you get off the beaten path and and you can get away from the hordes. 
and I certainly have on this trip. But what I'm going to remember most about this trip down the coast of the beaches of California is is the wind at my back every day, that north wind as I move south, and just a tremendous number of shorebirds that were migrating with it, and pelicans. I will say I've seen, I think I've seen six ducks so far. Very, very few waterfowl. I've heard some high geese overhead, but it's been the shorebirds that have made this trip epic, right in the north wind. I'll be back in just a moment, and when I come back, I'm going to tell you, talk about, as many of you have asked me to do, keep talking about that trip I made 40 years ago. I'll tell you where I was 40 years ago this time. It's quite a story. You're listening to Charlie Potter on the Outdoor Voice of Chicago and America, 720 WGN. And first, a message from our longtime sponsors, the Northwest Indiana and Chicagoland Chevrolet dealers. When sunrise is your alarm clock, life is different. You eat a ditch for breakfast. Love the smell of diesel in the morning with a hot cup of joe. The weather report is 40% chance of mud. And corporate pull, that's 36,000 pounds of towing capacity with a gooseneck trailer. Mudden is PTO. You know sometimes when the paved road ends, the fun begins. Chevy Silverado 3500 HD is waiting to run over something, anything. No road, no problem, because the best way out is always through. A trouble rides a swift horse, and you don't want trouble pulling a backhoe loader. Chevy Silverado HD is a wake-up call. Now, during Chevy truck season, get a $1,000 accessory allowance toward the purchase of a new truck with accessories. You worked hard for your money. Spend it smart. So see your Chicagoland and Northwest Indiana Chevy dealer today or go to ChevyDriveChicago.com for all the details. Chevy Silverado HD. Power up and experience life in HD. It's Charlie Potter and the Great Outdoors on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. Welcome back to the Great Outdoors show. Charlie Potter here on WGN Radio. So I mentioned at the top of the show, if you hear some background noise, I'm on location. I'm on the the beaches of the Pacific Ocean, the Conception Point, dark as can be here, and the surf is up. And so if you hear background noise, it's the pounding of the Pacific hitting the sand coming. Well, the Channel Islands are out in front of me, so they break quite a bit of the surf. But otherwise, it's, it's coming a long way from Japan to California. So 40 years ago, where was I? I've talked about the epic trip that I consider epic. It was the trip where I followed the migration from the end of the road in northern Manitoba to the end of the road and beyond in Louisiana. Road ends in Venice, Louisiana. I'll take you there probably in January when I was there 40 years ago. But today, or this week, this time period, 40 years ago, the Canadian prairies were beginning to ice up for winter. I had some rough weather. There had already been some snow. And two things happened that were, uh, were really kind of extraordinary. I found myself in the Cumberland House. The Cumberland House is a small um, native village uh, about 60 miles by river west of the Pa. Uh, you can only get there by crossing the Saskatchewan River in a, in a, make, in a little floating barge. No vehicles on the Cumberland House. Uh, you, everything you do is by boat. And I arrived there as, as winter was beginning to take grip on, the, on this Northland, this huge, immense marsh area. And what I remember about the Cumberland House was I drove for, it was 60 miles of gravel from the Pa to the Cumberland House. And this is 1982, late October 1982, 60 miles of gravel to the Cumberland House. And it took 
it seemed like days, but it took many, many hours because the road, and I was in a pickup truck with a sliding camper and a trailer and a boat, on a trailer, small boat. The road was so terrible. You, you couldn't you couldn't go more than, and I'm not exaggerating. If you went 10 miles an hour, you were going too fast. It took me just about six hours to go 60 miles, and then I reached the Cumberland House, which I can tell you I'm one of the very few people. I'm the only person I actually know who's ever been there, but I'm very one of the very few duck hunters that's ever arrived there, and I arrive, and and I'm the only I'm the only uh, non-native person there, and uh, I uh, I'm going to stay in the hotel, or I, I guess it was a hotel, um, might not pass for one, but it was where I was going to bunk, and I crossed over on this little barge, and I hit this. The town was about 200 shacks and about 1,000 dogs, or so it seemed. That's an exaggeration. Maybe 999 dogs. There were so many dogs, and they're all barking. And, of course, you know none of them have all of them are carrying, you know, every disease, every flea, everything you possibly can have. And uh, I stayed there for a week. And each day the, the water grew harder. Uh, the ice would come at night and it would take longer to get out in the day. And the geese, the cackling geese, were on the move. And I, uh, I remember there was a little bit of agriculture there. I had gone out in the marsh with my go double motor and found a sandbar, and it caught a green-winged teal migration for the ages. And I sat there with a friend of mine who was brave enough to, to, bear, to, to come to the Cumberland house with me. Of course, I didn't give him all the background before I went. Uh, his eyes were about the size of flying saucers when he saw a, where we were going to say, stay, and B, how we were going to be hunting on this enormous marsh in, in this little boat. But we got on the sand point and the green-winged teal, it seemed by the thousands, were, were just coming by us as they rode the north wind and picking up out of these marshes and headed south. Their next point south would be somewhere in the upper Mississippi River or maybe even all the way to Kansas. But they came by us and riding the wind, as, as, as one would say, and we, we had an air show unlike really any for green-winged teal that, I, that I've seen in Canada. I've seen some in, in Utah and the, and the West that are pretty extraordinary. So we came back to the hotel, and, and it was our last night there, and we decided, well, we ought to have a duck dinner. And, and the hotel, it wasn't the hotel, it was a motel, uh, and you had holes in your door, and, and it was, it was really pretty, pretty grim. And we uh, decided we would have duck dinner. So we, and we've been giving our ducks, the few ducks that we shot, uh, we've been giving our ducks to the, to the locals. And they were happy to have them. So we kept two ducks for dinner. And we're, we sit down and they made the food, though, was, was very good, even though the accommodations were Spartan. And we, uh, we sat down for dinner and three ducks arrived. Well, we know we had given them two. So we each ate a duck and, well, I had a big appetite. So I ate the third duck and we went to bed and sometime well, four or five hours later, I said, Oh, I don't think I feel very well. Well, I had the worst case of food poisoning I've, I've ever had. I never want to have it again. It was a long time before I could look at eating a duck. Somehow that third duck, I have no idea where it came from, but it wasn't ours. And it had, it was, it had gone bad. It was wretched. And I of course was the sucker that ate it. So I left the Cumberland house practically, and <laughs> I, I couldn't even function 
and it went across on the barge. We had to put our boat on the uh, on the trailer, and the, the north wind is screaming. It's spitting snow, and we know we got to get out of there because it could snow a foot overnight, and we'd be stuck there. And when you, we might be stuck there for a very long time, like all winter, which we weren't going to let happen. So, doubled over in pain, and everything that happens with food poisoning. Uh, we we got it. We got onto the road, and I essentially passed out while my friend drove us to uh, towards Saskatoon and, and the nearest motel that you could actually call a motel. And I spent two days in that motel. I was sicker than I've ever been. Uh, my friend just did what he could to care for me, um, but there was there was nothing I could do. I, I was so sick, and uh, finally. It, the, uh, the food poisoning passed, and we were we were in such a remote area that the idea of a doctor or anything. This is 1982. You don't you don't have the internet. You, you can't get on your cell phone and call and say I need a prescription or whatever. But no, that doesn't exist. And I certainly um, wasn't going to be attended medically in the Cumberland House. So anyway, after two days of being just basically passed out, uh, I, I was able to function enough to get back in the vehicle. And turn the vehicle south, southeast, heading back to Saskatchewan, heading back to Manitoba. And then the other part of this story I'll, I'll end the show with is, you know, when it rains, it pours. So I dropped my friend at the airport in Saskatoon and headed back to southern Manitoba as I was trying to stay ahead of the storm. And it snowed and the roads were terrible. And my alternator went out. And it's dark. So I knew, and I had about 150 miles of road where where there was absolutely nothing, no gas station, no town, nothing. And here my alternator has gone out, and I'm looking at the battery being drained. So I had a Q-beam spotlight in the car, and I shut off my headlights because once you're running the car, you can you can keep running it with the alternator, with no alternator, as long as you aren't drawing down the battery with lights and, and radio and stuff. So... Long and short of it is, I stuck a Q-beam spotlight out the out the road at night, and I drove for 120 miles or more with a Q-beam spotlight until I was finally pulled over by a Canadian Mountie, and I think he pulled me over for speeding. I had no idea how fast I was going because I couldn't see the speedometer, and he asked me what I was doing with the spotlight out the window and going 16 miles an hour down the road. Thanks for listening. Be back next Saturday, Sunday morning with much more in the great outdoors. I'll be back from Utah. From the beaches of California, this is Charlie Potter on the Outdoor Voice of Chicago and America, 720 WGN.